Are you like I was, that you don't think an art gallery could be a good business? Well, prepare to be corrected. When Sean Moore discovered acquisition through entrepreneurship, it was love at first sight. He pivoted hard out of his corporate path to buy a 33-year-old art gallery in Denver. And this is a serious business. It does over $4 million a year in revenue and over $1 million in SDE. Those are solid numbers for any Acquiring Minds guest, let alone an art gallery of all things. And the icing is, this is a passion business. Sean is a collector of art himself, and he says at one point about his life today, I'm surrounding myself in beautiful art every day. By the way, Sean wasn't looking for a passion business. He'd looked at a generator rental business, a multifamily renovation business, but he got lucky, saw the gallery, this beacon of light, as he calls it, and ran after it. And boy, am I excited for him. Sean was very transparent in this episode. Thank you, Sean. We go deep on the twists, turns, and terms of his acquisition. So for those of you who like studying the anatomy of a deal, this one is for you. We also talk about the gallery business itself, how it makes money, how it leverages the internet and its physical location, growth levers, what the strategy is. I loved learning about it. What a neat business. Okay, please enjoy this conversation with Sean Moore, owner of Fascination Street Fine Art. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. You already know that business owners are making amazing use of virtual assistants, often based in the Philippines. And while virtual assistants are helpful, virtual professionals are transformative. More Staffing is a boutique agency that hires A players in the Philippines, not for simple tasks, but for deep competency work. Think operators, supply chain managers, controllers. More Staffing de-risks your engagement with a 12-month guarantee to you, and they provide coaching for six months to their talent when an engagement begins. That means your hire is coached in the background, no additional cost to you, so that your working relationship flourishes and is as successful as it can be. Global staffing is increasingly the norm, and building the muscle within your business to take advantage of it will be crucial in the years ahead. Speak with more staffing about the pool of capable, affordable managers they can connect you with. Check out morenow.co. That's morenow.co. Sean Moore, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thanks, Will. Very happy to be here. Honored to be here. Sean, this is going to be such a fun conversation. You bought an art gallery. It is a top performing gallery in the country. It's a 33-year-old business. It's a sizable business. We'll get into the numbers later. And you are an art enthusiast yourself with your own collection. So this aligns with a personal interest and passion. So we're going to hear all about this fascinating acquisition, and of course, learn about the business of art galleries. And whether your cool story here is kind of a one-off or whether listeners should approach owners of galleries in their cities about selling. But let's start with a little background on you first, please, Sean, if you'd go ahead. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I'm uh, originally from the Minneapolis area, and uh, my family moved to Jacksonville, Florida when I was about seven, where I, I lived there till I was about 18. I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, where I double majored in finance and management information systems. Out of school, I, I got a job at Ernst & Young Management Consulting in 1998. It was, a, it was a great job right out of school. I, I started traveling a lot every week uh, to different cities where I would have projects for three, six, you know, eight, nine months at a time. And one of these projects was uh, like a nine or 10 month stint in the Netherlands. And it was based out of The Hague, but um, I would be living in Amsterdam. So this was a life-changing event for a 24-year-old uh, to go to Europe and, you know, be on an expense account and uh, you know, and, I got to... and this was before pot was legal in the U.S. By the way, everyone. So let's Absolutely. remember what yeah, Amsterdam uh, was yeah, a mecca yeah. for a, cer a certain a something back a in the decade day. and a half before you know Denver or before Colorado paved the way you know here in the U.S. So I was also traveling across Europe and got to visit you know up to twelve countries during that stint. So I, I kind of like lived in this hotel, but I would check out on the weekends and check back in, you know, on Sunday night and, you know, oh, amazing. Take, take the train down to, you know, Den Haag, uh, you know, on Monday morning. That was my life. It was great. I was, you know, taking the train to and from work and sometimes I'd stay in the Hague and stayed at a hotel around on, on the North Sea. It was great. It, you know, it really, it started my love of travel. You know, I, I yep. think I had been to to Norway and, and France and Italy before that. But after this, you know, it was a, it was a marriage. It became, you know, my number one passion really in life. And, you know, coupling that with my love of world history and literature and learning languages, very humanities, you know, focused interests. I, um, it started to draw a connection briefly to my, my business choice here, which is I started to collect art everywhere I went. So I, I started buying, you know, paintings, watercolors, sculptures. It started in Holland and France and um, Czech Republic and, and Spain. And, um, you know, eventually over the years, you know, all across Asia and South America as well. But um, art became my kind of number two passion in life because everywhere I'd go, I'd come back with something that I would put up on my wall that would remind me of that you know, cityscape, that pastoral setting, that religious icon or, you know, whatever historical figure, you know, that I picked up. And over the years, my house became a museum of all my travels. So that's- Sean, uh, since, you, since you told me that on our pre-call, I've been kicking myself for not having done the same. I've, I've had the good fortune to be a lot of, visit a lot of places and I've, you know, picked up a piece or two along the way, but, uh, but I- I love the idea of just like, you know, that's going to be the thing that you do on every trip is, is find something beautiful and bring it home with you as a keepsake, as, as something to decorate your space. It's, it's a great, it's a great idea and build, kind of building a collection over the long term that each, each item of which has kind of personal resonance and, and recalls a memory. Yeah, it, it's great. And you know, I've got a friend who used to collect shot glasses everywhere you went. I'm not going to say who he is, but he is going to be on your podcast at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it, he, he'd watch me collect these paintings and, and he got the bug, you know, he got into it and he started collecting paintings. And now his home is, is very much decorated with, you know, masks from Africa when we went to the world cup down there and, you know, paintings from all over the world. And, and it's caught on with a lot of my friends and, and uh, even my mom who I also travel with. So it's a, it's a great, 
you know, pastime and great passion. Really cool. Okay. So where, where do you find yourself professionally in the years leading up to where, where you now are? Yeah, so I, I finished up the the gig with Ernst and Young after the Amsterdam project. So um, I got recruited and took a new role as a, an executive account leader for a tech services company called Service Source here in Denver. They're a global company uh, that provided uh, recurring revenue management services for big tech, and I managed the executive relationships and global delivery teams for some of our biggest clients like Microsoft and Adobe and Avaya. Broadcom, Mitel, and a handful of others. Think if you're Microsoft, you know, you've got your biggest customers and you're, you're going to really have a, uh, you know, close relationship with them. But then you've got your, your long tail or your SMB, you know, small, medium businesses, and uh, you can't get to all of them, right? So they, they would hire companies like ours to, to engage with them at that level. And, you know, and our, our job was to, you know, bring in, um, that, that large amount of recurring revenue where, you know, if you look at one client, it might not be much, but if you look at all those SMB clients, it was, it was a lot of revenue, right? So yeah. it was nothing, it was nothing to sneeze at and they didn't want to lose it. And we were really good at, at doing that. And then the, the last job that I had, um, was I, I moved, I was recruited to another role where it was a very enticing opportunity, a great compensation package to be, you know, the VP of solutions at a, at a larger, uh, like $4 billion tech outsourcing company that was looking to expand their footprint in the, the tech industry, customer success, recurring revenue and, and sales services type of work that I was doing previously. So I started getting a little frustrated after about a year and, uh, and maybe, uh, you know, in that last year uh, of employment there leading up to January, or I guess April of this year, I, um, you know, I started looking for other opportunities and, you know, I'd message, uh, you know, my friend, the same guy who collects the shot classes say, Hey, you know, when are we going to get out of this rat race? You know, what are we going to do? And, you know, this is also my, my best friend from college where when we were 20, 20 years old, 21 years old, right after we graduated, we'd, we'd sit up all night in our apartment in Dallas, Texas, and, um, you know, sit outside of our balcony and sit there and try to talk about, you know, what companies we'd start up. And, you know, how we could be CEOs someday and, uh, you know, how are we going to get that done? But we were both just, you know, too, too green, I think, you know, to really make anything like that happen. And we had to learn our, our lessons along the way. And, you know, I, I truly do believe that, you know, my, my career prepared me for, you know, the, the, the exercise that I just went through with the acquisition. So, um, so I sent that text to him. He came back and said, yeah, I know I've been thinking about it. And then, um, you know, that's um, probably towards the end of last year. And then right after New Year's 2023, in beginning of January this year, um, he he called me and, and said, you know, and he just started talking really fast. And he was like really excited to tell me all about all this reading that he had been doing over his Christmas break. And, you know, he started talking about this book that he uh, read called Buy Then Build. He told me about SBA loans and how you can get a loan for up to $5 million, you know, but you have to have, you know, some collateral and blah, blah, blah. And, and then he told me about the Acquiring Minds podcast, how he listened to maybe like <laughs> 20 hours of it so far over his time at Christmas when he probably should have been hanging out with his family. But uh, I think he was, you know, really getting into it. And um, he also told me about the Biz Buy Sell Marketplace 
And then, you know, finally, like the thing that clinched it for me was when he told me about the, the Rob's transaction, mm -hmm. the, which is the, you know, the rollover for business startups, acronym ROBS. Um, this is when it all clicked for me. This is when everything changed. And he shared how you can use the funds from a retirement account to fund a startup business or to acquire a business uh, you know, or acquire the assets of a new business. And as soon as I heard this, it was, uh, I jumped in with a hundred questions. And uh, because of the last 25 years of my corporate career, I did a great job of tucking money away into my retirement accounts, but I was, you know, only modestly liquid, you know, in terms of, you know, money that I could put down to make an investment. And so for me, it was like the parting of the seas where it was a creation of a path to a new future and all these light bulbs were going off for me. And, and it, I felt like this is my moment, you know, the, the, the clouds were parting, the light was shining. <laughs> and cause what seemed so harrowing before the idea of building a startup, uh, having low income for a couple of years and uh, you're know, having to fund an acquisition with modest liquidity, like that was starting to be no longer a problem. Like there, there was not an obstacle anymore. So I, I quickly told him to stop talking because it was all quite confusing. <laughs> But I said, look, immediately send me the, the name of the book, you know, Buy Then Build by, by Walker Dybel. Send me your contact's name at this, you know, Rob's Transaction Company, which for him was, was Guidant. And uh, his contact was a guy named Josh Level, who was awesome, by the way. And uh, he was a fountain of information for me. And, you know, I'd, I'd recommend listeners, if you're exploring, you know, to go this path, you know, reach out, find Josh Level, at, you know, at, at Guidant and, and um, tell him I sent you. And, and finally, I said, "What you know? What's the link to that that podcast?" And so he sent me the link to your podcast, Acquiring Minds. Which, you know, I told you this in our pre-call. Will like, I can't thank you enough. You know, you you've created a community here, and this podcast did so much for me. And I really think you're doing your listeners a, a huge service. So uh, thank you. That's awesome, Sean. Thank thank you for saying that, man. I appreciate that. So yeah, much. of course. And and I couldn't hang up the phone fast enough. Once his text message just started coming through, I was like, okay, gotta go, gotta go. I literally said, like, I'm gonna call you in two weeks. And uh, so we hung up. I dove right into the book. You know, I, I started listening to the podcast. I uh, you know did my research on the Rob's transaction. I started you know trying to understand you know what the whole business broker. Uh, market was all about because, you know, Walker Dybul really focuses on that in his book, mm. you know, mm -hmm. built, you know, building relationships to get, you know, upstream deal flow. And, and, um, you know, I started um, looking at biz by sell, but it was funny, like these, these things happen in phases, right? Because as you're preparing, you kind of need to arm yourself with information. And the first time you get on biz by sell is almost like nerve wracking because you're like, okay, you know, I don't even know what I'm doing here. You know, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I was perusing and, you know, eventually filtered down, you know, some items, um, and, and saw okay, okay. Within Denver, you know, there's a, there's a ton of businesses, you know, available. Cause I didn't want to move. That wasn't an option for me. I've got a, I've got a, a wife and a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And, and so moving was not an option. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund, the second time around he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. 
a great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com, link in the show notes. So was Biz Buy Sell also kind of a revelation? Because I, a lot of people have an aha moment where they actually go on and they can see literally businesses within a 10 mile radius of where they live that are for sale. That you, The idea that there's a marketplace for businesses you can go buy. I love Biz Buy Sell to this day. Did, was, was that eye opening for you? Absolutely. You know, and I'd heard of the concept of buying a business before, probably about nine years prior. And, you know, because I, I knew a guy that went out and bought like a janitorial services company. And and to me, it just didn't sound very sexy. Like, why would I want to buy some business that's for sale that's probably not going to be successful? It's, you know, for sale for a reason. And I don't know anything, you know, about how to do that. And, you know, I, I think I just wasn't ready at the time from a, you know, business maturity standpoint. But but yeah, when I looked at it this time, I was thinking, you know, I, I didn't do, I, say I hadn't finished the book yet and I hadn't listened to Acquiring Minds, you know, the hundreds of hours that I've listened to since. <laughs> and um, so, I, you know, it, it, was, it was fascinating, right? And, you know, so I, I got vaguely familiar with it, but, but really I continued my education. I, I finished the book. I think I, I, I got the audio book. I listened to it twice. And, um, you know, I, I, it, it was like the best step-by-step -step guide for, you know, how to prepare you for, you know, that journey. And, um, you know, I mentioned before, like, there's a lot of focus in that book on um, building upstream deal flow and reaching out to brokers. And, and I remember um, after looking at biz by sell, the first, like the first thing that really caught my eye was this multi-site art gallery in Denver, Colorado. And I was like, I couldn't even believe it. I thought for sure it was going to be, you know, one of these like small galleries in this part of town that, you know, uh, that I didn't want to operate a business in because there, there's, there's an area like that. And, and, um, I, I did the, you know, request more information and, uh, learned that it was in Cherry Creek, which is, you know, a really upscale, uh, business and entertainment district, you know, uh, in, in the center of Denver, just like seven minutes from downtown, They've got hotels, restaurants, bars, salons, galleries, um, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, shops and um, uh, super high end growing significantly. You know, it's always been sort of the, the high end part of Denver, but now like more hotels and apartment complexes and condos are, are going in the area. So it's just skyrocketing right now. So I couldn't believe it was right in the heart of, of Cherry Creek, right at, you know, third in Detroit. And um, so... Go ahead, Sean. Let me let me jump in real quick. The actually before we get into the story of your buying the the gallery, sure. A little bit more on kind of as you approached it. So, a number of my guests have used Rob's, but I'm interested that for you it was like such a big unlock because basically you were looking at your financial picture and you weren't super liquid, so you didn't have a lot of cash. And in your own mind, you were like, "Well, I'm going to need this cash to buy a business." I'm going to need cash to buy a business, even if I can finance it in some way. I probably need more cash than I have. But then your Rob's was pretty healthy. And so that was the difference for you. Because I feel like a lot of people who've been on, I, and I'm, I may be wrong about this, um, but they decided they'd buy a business. 
And then they learn about this thing, Rob's, which is great. Oh, I can tap my, my 401k as well. But for you, it's like you wouldn't have proceeded if you didn't learn about the existence of Rob's and that you could access your 401k. Do I have that right? Pretty much. I mean, that, that was the difference maker for me. Okay. Okay. Great. And also, I just want to try to uh, tease out what the difference in your mentality was today versus whatever it was nine years ago when you heard about somebody buying a janitorial business. And at the time, it just was totally unappealing. And as you, I think as you put it, like you weren't ready. And, and like now you were ready to hear something like that. Because, you know, everybody who is listening to Acquiring Minds like gets it. But there's still a lot of people out there who don't get it. And it's like, you know, why buy one of these old businesses? And, it, and it's just interesting. It's kind of binary. It's like it either, it either really lands with you and you're like, yes, like, you know, you and he who shall remain nameless, your buddy. <laughs> it just, it just like, it was just like, it was, it was an immediate, like an epiphany and so exciting. Um, and yet nine years before, and this is probably the case for many, many people still, like it didn't land on you at all. It was like, Ugh, what do you think changed in you? You know, I, I've said to so many people, um, God, I wish I had done this 10 years prior, you know, because I, I've list, a lot of your listeners, I think, are, you know, so you've got some maybe in your late 20s, but a lot of them are landing in their 30s, right? And, and, yeah. and I, I have lots of jealousy, you know, when I, when I hear them talking about what they've done, because I think, God, you know, I could have done this 10 years ago had I known about the Rob's transaction. Uh, but but timing's everything, right? And I was in the point in my career where I thought I was going to, you know, grow up and be a chief ex officer of a tech company or a mm -hmm. tech startup, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was my dream, right? You know, we all have our dreams of, uh, you know, having some kind of like, you know, financial windfall or exit or business success. And and mine was to, you know, eventually find, you know, the right company, the right product or solution that I really loved and believed in and, and help, you know, uh, scale that into, you know, a global company. And, and so I think I was a bit blinded by that and blinded by the career climbing and, and the rat race. And, you know, once you're in that, it's hard to, you know, pull your head out of the sand and, and look around and, and see what's out there. So, so I think when I heard about the Rob's transaction, it made it real for me because I realized I've saved enough money. I could easily qualify, you know, to buy a lot of these companies that I'm looking at, you know, whereas before I, I didn't necessarily have that qualification uh, or know that I was qualified because I didn't know about the Rob's transaction. So I think part of it was my identification of, you know, the opportunity that I had that I could do it. Yeah. And, and, and also just, you know, being a little bit more seasoned in business and, you know, writing contracts and selling and doing everything that you do as you get into those upper echelons of, of the corporate world. So um, my friend, you know, Jan and I, we talk about it all the time, how, you know, our, our careers have prepared us for this point because a lot hmm. of the buying process, the acquisition process really wasn't that hard for us. It's stressful. You know, there's a lot of work you have to do. There's late nights and, you know, your deals falling apart, you know, three or four times throughout the process. And, uh, but it wasn't hard. It wasn't anything that I hadn't like necessarily, you know, been able to do in terms of mind share before. So, um, it, and, it, and, and why was that Sean? Cause you guys both had kind of had sales experience and sales at a pretty high level where you're, you know, you're signing contracts worth 
tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. So like you're used to kind of high stakes deals sort of thing. Yeah. Like de deals for millions of dollars and, um, and, and, you know, leading teams, you know, across the country and across the world and, and, and selling to, you know, seasoned executives and, and the C-suite and, you know, managing, you know, critical, uh, operations or, you know, risk management areas for, for big companies. So it's like you're, you're running parts of a business, right? You're, yeah. you are running parts of a business. And as you move your career around, you, you, you get to experience another piece of scope that you maybe hadn't done before. And so it all starts to fit together. And, um, you know, personally, mm -hmm. I look at myself, you know, in my, in my late forties, um, being a bit late to the game, you know, maybe I'm just a, a late bloomer, you know, here where, when I hear some of your, you know, 30 somethings on here, but, um, you know, it was the right timing for me. And, and that's what I guess I wanted to come back to, which is, you know, I tell people all the time, I wish I had done this, but it really was the right timing for me. And yeah. it was an awakening and, um, and it just became obvious painfully obvious. I, I actually started telling, I had my, my in-laws in town for Christmas. I started telling them when they were still here, I think they left like around January 10th, you know, around January 5th, guys, I'm going to buy a business, you know, <laughs> and this was, you know, four days after my conversation with my friend and, uh, you know, and I just started kind of rattling off the, the, you know, some of the basic stuff that I knew. And, and I, you know, I said, I, this is what I'm going to do. And, and I also told that to my wife and she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> She's like, okay, so you've been like, you know, drinking all throughout the, the Christmas holiday and now you want to buy a business. <laughs> okay, honey, we need to talk, you know, but you've been talking to Jan again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You've been talking to your, your good buddy again. Well, Sean, you know, on this point about wishing you'd started earlier, um, I'll, I'll spare you the, we shouldn't compare ourselves because we all do, including <laughs> me, but I, but, but like, let, let's just indulge in, in, in comparing ourselves and in the reality that our egos exist. Look, man, you, you, you bought a $5 million business. Okay. So, so, okay. So you're not 32, you're whatever, 46, 48, but you still, I mean, how many people can say they bought a $5 billion, $5 million business themselves and put that together and made that happen and now own this business. And you've got a lot of years left in your career and you've learned this incredible skill of how to buy a business. It's such a valuable skill that you could very realistically do it again and again and again. So, and, and let's also not forget that the very point of ETA is that it's something of a shortcut. This is a 33-year-old business that you get to roll in exactly. and be owner of. So, so in some ways, you, you know, you, you, you're way ahead. So I just say all that to put things in perspective. No, thanks for the pep talk. I, I'll call you every day. And <laughs> that's what dog, I'm here for, And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just call me Stuart Smalling, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's get back to the plot here. Okay. The other last question I wanted to ask before you carry on um, about your search as it, to, to the extent that it was kind of a search was, did you, it sounds like you were just kind of browsing biz by sell when you encounter the business that you now own. Was there any kind of other thesis that you had or what were like, how well-defined were your criteria? Let me put it that way. Yeah. You've already told us that you weren't going to move. So it had to be near Denver or in Denver. Yeah. So, you know, the first time I got on biz by sell, yeah, I still didn't really know what I was doing. I, I didn't have a thesis. I didn't, I didn't have criteria or, or scope yet. 
And that and at that point, it was still a bit intimidating to me because I didn't know what I was looking for, but I was just kind of browsing around and just looking at types of business, in, you know, in my geography. And, you know, I, I will say it wasn't like super enticing because, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there. And, um, yeah, you know, but, but after I got through the book, after I um, reached out to, you know, eventually, you know, a dozen, you know, SBA lenders, and then finally got up the guts to call, you know, my first broker uh, who had a, a deal that had the art gallery deal on, on biz by sell. Um, you know, I, then I started filling in the blanks, right? Because each call was an education, you know, each call mm -hmm. I, I brought, you know, the accumulation of the last call with somebody else and I was filling in the blanks and I was literally taking notes, you know, in like one note and, uh, and just, you know, writing down, everything that, you know, I was learning that was like net new from previous conversations. And so I started building this, you know, massive knowledge, right. And, you know, by, by the 12th call with a, uh, an SBA lender, you know, I got to the point where I could predict what they were going to say. And so I would, I would be able to volunteer, you know, the information before they'd have to ask, you know, and I already knew what the, you know, risk spots in my deal were, um, but, you know, and so I'd highlight them before, you know, they'd even be able, you know, to ask them. So, you know, it, it is, it, it builds confidence, right. Uh, you know, with, but you have to have the you know, tenacity to, to keep doing it and to keep filling in the blanks and, uh, and the curiosity and the guts, right. Those first few calls, like you, I came out of the gate saying, Hey, look, uh, I'm a novice here, you know, I'm, I, I need to use this as a learning opportunity. Uh, so I appreciate in advance, you know, this conversation and all the, you know, your willingness to kind of help me out here. And, and some of those early people that I spoke to, like Josh Level at Guidant and, you know, some of the lenders that I spoke to, I feel like I made friends with them because they've become advisors and I actually still keep in touch with them because um, I've got friends now, you know, that I'm, you know, kind of bringing along a, a, up, up the rears with the, you know, the ETA. So uh, I'm, you know, making references and, you know, I'm going out and meeting people that I met along the way, you know, for lunch and, and, you know, the, it's great, you know, it, it's really great. There's, there's a lot of community in here, as you know, you know, across uh, biz by sell and search funder and, uh, and acquiring minds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, Sean. Okay. So let's, let's get into the gallery now that you tell us the listing, what you saw, what you liked, you've already said that it was in this great part of Denver that you knew was really that you were bullish about. And also let's, let's, let's give it a name. What is the gallery called? It's fascination street fine art. What a great name fascination street. So what, what else do you like about fascination street when you see the listing? It's named after a cure song, by the way, the, the founder really loved the cure. So he named it after fascination street. So. Well, I, I was I actually a cool. good reminder because when I Googled it earlier today, I, that's what comes up and I was like, yeah. oh, this has to be more than a coincidence. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So Fascination Street is, uh, is, is a, a business that's been around for 33 years in the Cherry Creek neighborhood. Uh, it was, it was founded uh, by my seller 33 years ago. You know, at first he was an art dealer and, and he, at first he was just into like collectibles and animation and so we, you know, hung out a, you know, a shingle, got an office somewhere in Denver. And, you know, eventually this kind of morphed into um, not just animation and collectibles, but fine art. 
you know, he felt like I think his first uh, fine art acquisition from an artist is uh, an artist named Thomas Arvid, who does this amazing photorealistic wine art. And, you know, so it's paintings of like uh, high end wine bottles and glasses and from different perspectives. And and it's incredible. And this was where uh, my seller, you know, made his first purchase. And that was his first foray in, in, into fine art. And And I think he saw the potential in that. So that's really, you know, where, you know, 95% of his business, you know, started growing around. And, you know, he got in the space that we're in maybe 15, 16 years ago. It's at the, the corner of uh, East Third Avenue in Detroit in, in Cherry Creek and North Cherry Creek North. He bought these three parcels in the same building on the same floor and uh, connected them in the back. So he blew out the walls uh, in the back connected them. And so now it's a, it's one, um, you know, uh, gallery with, you know, three parcels. So it makes it a really nice, you know, walkthrough, right. Because there mm. are like two really large gallery sections, uh, on, on the, on the both ends. And then in the middle, there's a, a frame shop, which is something that, you know, one of his more recent, um, add-ons and probably two or three years ago. So, so we've got a fully functioning frame shop. We've got, uh, a, you know, a really large gallery, about 6,000 square feet of space. And, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a nice journey, you know, from one end to the other to see all the different art that's in there. And we've got about, we probably represent 30 to 40 uh, artists t today. Uh, they are all um, nationally acclaimed artists. They're, they are contemporary artists. So all of them are alive today. So we don't have any any masters, uh, don't have, um, it might have a couple pieces of modern art, but, but it's really focused on contemporary artists. And, and the business model is, is such that, or the qualification is that, you know, these artists need to be represented in other, other high-end fine art galleries. And, and that's the qualification. And, um, so we'll, we'll look at them. We'll see who's representing them. And obviously we need to curate based on, you know, taste and theme. And and then we'll we'll add them to the collection if they're not already already represented in in Denver or Colorado, because in the mm -hmm. art business there's a lot of exclusivity with galleries. So you might have a a uh, up and coming artist uh, who you know latches on to a high end gallery in New York City and they want exclusive representation, which means that artist cannot go in another gallery. But most of them. Um, can be represented, you know, and, you know, by, uh, you know, 200 square mile, you know, geography or something. So I could have an artist that's represented, uh, by another gallery in Aspen or, or Vail by a different gallery. Mm -hmm. But it does give you basically geographic exclusivity in you've your got to have local it. market. Yeah. You've got to have Ooh. it there. There are at least like four or five other galleries in, in Cherry Creek and, and there's no crossover and that's by design. And so does that mean that those other four or five galleries you're very competitive with, like you, you guys really kind of duke it out because I assume, you know, there's only so many artists in the world that are kind of experienced pull through demand by collectors. And so you guys are really fighting to be the exclusive local dealer effectively or distributor or whatever, I guess, or gallery <laughs> uh, for those artists. So it probably makes it a less than collegial experience with your, your fellow gallery owners. That, that's not how I view it actually. And, and the, the, the one thing that I've learned in my journey is that there are many different echelons of the art industry. 
Mm-hmm. You you know, you've got your, um, you know, Heritage House, Sotheby's, you know, auctions, uh, you know, in London, New York City, Hong Kong. Um, and then, you know, you've, there's probably a couple tiers, you know, below that of really high end art dealing and they're trading and Picasso's and Miro's and Salvador Dali and, and a lot of, you know, uh, Renoir in, in masters, right. And they're auctioning them, you know, 50 million here, hundred million there. And, and that's a totally different space. Right. And then, so every, every gallery has kind of a, a unique curation and they create an identity for themselves. So mm-hmm. I would say to some degree, yes, there's some healthy competition with the galleries in, in my neighborhood, but I, I literally was in one of them yesterday while I was waiting to get a coffee. Uh, two weeks ago, I went in one of the other ones uh, to just go in and introduce myself and, and, and try to get to know some of the staff and you know, learn a thing or two from, uh, from them and you know, invite them out to lunch. And they invited me to one of their events that weekend. So it's, it's very collegial, you know, if, if there were a gallery, you know, that I competed with, you know, it wouldn't probably wouldn't be like that, but I would say the galleries I compete with, uh, where, where we have a lot of overlap in artists, those are spread out across the country. You know, those galleries mm-hmm. are, you know, in Key West and Fort Lauderdale and Las Vegas and Laguna beach and LA. Uh, and there are, you know, maybe, you know, half dozen to 10, you know, galleries across the country that, you know, we compete for deals, but, Another surprising thing about the gallery business is, um, you know, it's not fully dependent on walk-in traffic, right? I, I am blessed by the fact that I have a space in like the best neighborhood of Denver and I get quality walk-in traffic and, and people have uh, uh, spending money to, you know, to buy art and they have the interest. But I, you know, I, I've, we've structured the business in such a way that a lot of the business is online, Right, and a lot of a lot of the business is uh, is done through you know advertising who you have and um, and making sure that you're able to capture those leads you know before other galleries do. So, I think there are other galleries that that know about Fascination Street and they they feel like they are a competitor because we are hustling to get those leads. That's fascinating. So so a lot of the kind of the business is, is internet-based because one of my big questions about the business is like, what does the internet do to a business like this? Or what did it do years ago? And, and what does it mean today? And I, so I want to I wanna do a deep dive into more of the, how the business works in a minute, but I want to catch the plot up to, to you as owner. Can you give us some, some numbers that you saw there in the listing? Like give us a sense of, of size of business. It was a 4.2 million uh, revenue business last year. Um, and that had a, you know, net, net income of about 584 K, but there was roughly another, um, you know, 500 K of ad backs and, you know, owners salaries and, and owner, owner benefits, you know, SDE. So really the, the, the SDE was around 1.1 million. And, um, and at the end of the day, we, we did a valuation of 5.3 million which included uh, 1.4 million of inventory. And, um, and so when I look at the multiple, Will, like I, I look at the multiple, uh, the calculation for me, was because inventory in the art gallery business is so much more significant than if you're buying a janitorial services, home services company, right? You, you need some working capital, you need some inventory, but, but really 
the inventory is the lifeblood of the gallery business and also makes it a little bit more risky and, and interesting when um, when I'm having these conversations with banks trying to get a loan because you don't see a lot of art galleries come across and and all these banks, you know, uh, saw that as a, a nuance. Some some were kind of interested in it and, you know, others just sort of said, yeah, this is so, you know, out of our, you know, typical basket of deals that we're not sure. And mm -hmm. um so back to my calculation, it, you know, I, I kind of looked at it like the valuation at 5.3 million, I subtracted 1.4 million of inventory and, you know, got to like a, a $3.9 million business, uh, you know, without the inventory. Mm -hmm. So when you uh, look at SDE of, you know, you know, 1.1, 1.2 million, let's say the multiple is around 3.25 X and, and that's how I see it. And, and that looked like a, a good multiple for me, a little bit of a premium when you consider, you know, the inventory, but again, the inventory is, is different with the art gallery business. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Sean, I mean, the, the thing that jumps out at me is that an art gallery owner can take home a million dollars a year. Like we just don't think of these as businesses that could do that well. When I think of, but you know, I'm ignorant of it. So, you know, what do I know? But, but I think of an art gallery business as a passion business, you know, as, uh, you know, somebody who's, who's maybe an artist themselves, you know, maybe kind of adjacent to kind of a bed and breakfast or restaurant or, you know, something that somebody founds in retirement or because they're passionate, your seller may well have been somebody like that, but never one that has a lot of financial potential. Indeed, Many of them just struggle to survive if they survive at all. So <laughs> this gallery is doing basically when you when you add back everything, over a million dollars in SDE just blows my mind. Did it blow your mind? Did you have the same kind of intuition about the wrong intuition about these businesses? Yeah, I mean, I, I think initially you, you do think it's a sleepy business, and and honestly, when I tell my my friends and you know some of my family members. Uh, I'm, I'm going to buy an art gallery, you know, everyone's shocked because I think they have in their mind, you know, this paradigm of an art gallery that is a sleepy business with, you know, a single person, you know, sitting behind a desk that may or may not get up and talk to you when you come in. <laughs> exactly. And, you yes. know, and, and you just look around and they say, oh, you know, are you looking to fill a space on your wall? And, you know, yeah. however, however that goes. And, 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 and always empty, like there's nobody else in there always except empty. the person yeah. <laughs> sitting behind the desk. Yeah, yeah. And um, but but that's not this business. You know, this business is you know with the six thousand square feet. You know, we have a lot of inventory, and we we proudly show as much of that inventory as possible. But we also have an upstairs. Uh, I have an upstairs office, which is like an apartment, and that apartment is all art storage. So we have hundreds of paintings, you know, that are in storage, and so uh, we're constantly rotating the inventory and rehanging the gallery you know at least at least once a month we we have an art e exhibition an artist comes in and does a show for a couple days usually on a friday night for three hours and then a saturday afternoon for three or four hours and um and they come and you know they meet the collectors they do dedications on on the back of, of the painting or they'll sign things take pictures and that really, you know, helps connect, you know, the people and the and the collectors, you know, with the art itself because the artist can tell them the stories and 
and you know ultimately that is the job of 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 us as a as a sales team to connect people with the art right you can come in and you can view something uh, but you know if you don't really understand the technique or the background or uh, you know all the obstacles that the artist overcame to get to this point you know it doesn't mean as much and then when you're able to personalize it with you know something uh, that they see when they're on vacation here in Denver and it's a memory for them, or it reminds them of, you know, their dog that they had, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it is, right. You've got to connect people to the art and, um, you know, kind of getting back to your question though, you know, the business is, is built in such a way that it's, it's about generating leads online and driving people to the website. And, um, and when they come to the website, um, what we, what we want them to do is peruse the art and they're usually coming because they've Googled an artist. And that's why it's important for us to have a famous artist. So they're Googling an artist that they're looking for um, and that they're interested in. And we do a good job of making sure that we're coming up in one of those like top three or four options for them to click on. And once they do, they come to the website, they look at the art and, and most artists in this space in commercial fine art do not want prices published on the website. So they need to click inquire for price, send their email, send their phone number, and then that generates an incoming lead. It generates an auto response to the recipient, and then it generates an incoming lead to my team. And I have four sales consultants at the gallery that are dedicated to you know responding to these leads and also to responding to walk-in traffic. But I'd say that's a lot. That's a that's a big sales team. I mean, how many leads a day are you getting that you need four people to service them? Well, it's not four every day, right? You know, we we have right. a we have a schedule rotation, right? But ideally, right. we've got at least two sales consultants in there every day, right? And 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 the way the gallery is structured is I have two gallery directors, and I also call them sales consultants because they're responsible for selling, but they. I have a gallery director, assistant gallery director, and then I have um, you know one full-time sales consultant. I have uh, another resource who's kind of uh, a hybrid role where she's a sales consultant, the frame shop manager, and also what we call gallery assistant. Uh, and then I have two gallery assistants, and and the gallery assistants their their role is really focused on you know receiving incoming inventory. Uh, making sure that we're updating our systems, our website, our inventory software, and uh, you know, packing and shipping items. And they're also my marketing team at this point. So that was one of my my newest hires. I I looked for a gallery assistant that was willing to uh, roll their sleeves up and do you know all of the hard work of rehanging the gallery and doing inventory, packing and shipping. But also, I was looking for social media excellence and, and, and video content creation, because I think one of the big growth areas that I have in the business, you know, number one, if you go to the website, which, which is fascination, S-T-A-R-T.com uh, for fascination street art. If you go there, the website is from 2004, right? It is a, uh, it is a, a good symbol of early 2000s websites. And um, <laughs> which, you know, for me, was was good and bad coming into the deal because um, if if the revenue is what it is and the profit margin is what it is today, and I'm able to, to modernize that website, make it so much more aesthetically pleasing and functional, 
uh, you know, I've got a big, you know, growth opportunity ahead of me. So that's exactly. something that, that we've been working on. And, and, you know, back to social media, uh, that, you know, the team had previously done a really good job of, you know, uploading photos on, you know, Instagram or Facebook, uh, and the website, um, you know, that we have of the art, you know, to promote it, but we weren't doing anything that was like sticky, you know, nothing in the kind of short form video, where you, that you see in TikTok or Instagram Reels, and so now we're starting to experiment. We 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 put out our first TikTok a couple of weeks ago. We're very proud of that. I think we've got four or five of those, and and that may or may not be you know the the ultimate consumer that I'm going after. But part of the the marketing approach is is really getting the brand out there, the name, the familiarity, you know, both locally and uh, nationally. So, you know, that's just one of one of the tools, but we're also going to be, you know, updating the website significantly as we get into 2024. So, Sean, it was $4.2 million a year in sales, right? That's right. what that's what it was. Right. right. So four so that divided by 12 is what three hundred and fifty thousand yeah. dollars a month, something exactly. like that. Exactly. So three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a month in art. <laughs> I mean so can I ask what your median sale price is for a piece? Just give us a perspective. I guess what I'm looking for, of course, is how many units are you selling per week? Mm, that, that's a good question. I think the last I looked, we had sold uh, you know, up to maybe 180, 190 pieces so far this month, right? So mm-hmm. um, one thing that we also do well with, I think, is offer... Um, uh, lower priced items that are affordable for people that mm-hmm. are walking in the gallery. And, you know, maybe they're not ready to buy an $8,000 original canvas, or they're not able to buy a $102,000, you know, bronze life-size sculpture of an elephant. I say life-size, it's not really life-size, but that's what we call it. Cause it's really large, uh, that, <laughs> you know, that weighs, you know, 350 pounds. Um, and, so, you know, we have, you know, small sculptures and we have, you know, prints and we have, um, you know, uh, hanging sculptures and, and pieces that can range between, you know, $200 to $1,000. And we do really well with that. So I, I'd say our average sale price is probably between two to $3,000. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we do go all the way up to, you know, our, our largest piece that we, we sold recently was $102,000. It was, it was that elephant. So, wow. wow, and and so, what percentage of that revenue is coming from online, basically? And, and you're not e-commerce. Let's be clear, because it's, I mean, it's it's kind of e-commerce. So you get a lead online, but then it sounds like it's a very kind of human. Like your sales consultants probably have a conversation, and obviously, the higher the higher price the item is the more likely there is to be a conversation. You don't have prices listed online, so there needs to be some kind of interaction. So, so does that take place mostly over email or over calls or depends or what? Yeah, it, it does depend, but I, I would say it, it's kind of a hybrid process between digital and, and human intervention, you know, and, and frankly, I'd love to increase the digital percentage of that pie chart, yeah. but uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to take time. And, you know, uh, the, the original way of doing business in the art gallery is, you know, somebody walks in, likes a piece, you negotiate, uh, and then you arrange uh, for, um, you know, handover or, or shipping, right? 
So for yeah. us, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's creating the, you know, digital footprint and awareness out there that we have the pieces that people are interested in bringing them to the website. And then when they, when they reach out to us via the website, that's when the, the human intervention begins and that process right. begins and, and it takes place depending on the buyer, right? It takes place over email, takes place over, 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 uh, you know, the phone. And sometimes there's a little negotiation there. You know, some galleries don't discount and some do, you know, we, we do discount, but we, you know, try to try to hold those discounts to, you know, 10%. Right. And, uh, but it also depends on, on the artist and it, it depends on the margin, you know, for the artist, you know, that we're buying from or from the publisher that we buy from. So publishers are, are like, think of them as like a, you know, an agency that represents mm -hmm. multiple artists and, mm -hmm. um, and we get certain buying terms from the publishers and from the artists. So uh, some are better than others. So that'll, that'll drive what we're willing to discount. So on the pie chart of where your revenue comes from, like what, 80, 90% of that is online leads. You know, I'd, I'd say it's probably closer to like 70, 75. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it's just, you just, trying to understand like to what extent this is a brick and mortar business. You do a lot, it sounds like, to, as you said, to kind of establish the local community, a connection between the artist and the local community. So you have these events monthly, at least, where where the artist is actually coming in and doing an exhibition. Uh, you've got this great space in a great neighborhood in Denver. You've done a frame shop now, which maybe let's hear a little bit about that. But all of this feels like a brick and mortar business that's trying to bring people in. Uh, and, you know, that's not, doesn't have to be mutually, exclu mutually exclusive that it's only brick and mortar or only e-commerce. But it's interesting because a lot of the effort, it seems, is bringing people in. And yet well over a majority of the revenue is, is e-commerce. Um, it's not a critique. I'm, I'm literally just trying to understand the business. I find it so interesting. We should probably get back to your story uh, and, and um, stop with all the academic questions about how the innards of the business works. But as I said, I'm very interested. Tell us why. Tell us why the seller did the frame shop inside, and did you think that that do you think that that was a good strategic move? I guess you got to say yes because you got employees who work in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I'll say yes, but I, I believe in my answer. Um, Look, you know, last year I think the frame shop did around 130 something thousand dollars, and uh, this year we're already up, uh, you know, 50 percent uh, from last year, same time last year. So it was a great idea. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's burgeoning, right? Because when you sell art, you know, if, if it's a if it's a painting, a print. Uh, people are going to need to frame that, right? So why yeah, not exactly. be the one-stop exactly. shop for that, right? Unless it's already pre-framed, which sometimes we we get those. But um, so yeah, it's 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 actually one of the major growth levers that that I have right now. That and you know increasing you know the the digital experience with a new website and and branding with social media. So. Um, yeah, the frame shop's been great. We've got, uh, a, you know, the frame shop manager who is, you know, the hybrid role. She, she does a few things. And then we have, um, we had uh, a lead framer and two framers also up there. So we have basically, you know, four people running the, the frame shop operation. I had, I had to let one of the framers go last week. So we've got a, a lead framer and a framer, uh, kind of doing all of the, the bulk of the, the hard work, you know, putting together, 
the frames, you know, stretching the canvas, you know, putting it, um, you know, together in a gallery wrapped frame and then, uh, and then framing it to the customer's specifications. Well, as I hear you talk about that, it strikes me, you know, frame shops, of course, are their own type of business. And many frame shops are just frame shops. Yeah, they sure they have a few pieces of art on the walls that you can buy, but that's not where the vast majority of their revenue is coming from. But it seems like this, this hybrid where you have a frame shop within uh, a high-end gallery is a great combination because, you know, it's kind of like the whole is more than the sum of the parts. Like they really, both sides of the business complement each other beautifully. Um, so that's, that's really, that's great. And are you, and I assume you are selling framing to people who are not just buying art from you. You get people off the, off the street or whatever. Who Absolutely. And, 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 that, and that's, that's on my to-do list right now too, is to really begin, you know, marketing that business, you know, independently, right? We've actually uh, branded it separately. We call it Denver Custom Frames. Um, uh, but you know, it it when you come into the to the gallery, I think people often ask like, "Oh, is this frame shop separate?" You know, because you could walk right into it through you know one of the corridors. Um, but mm. but we are we are going to put a, a big push into branding it separately. Come here to get your your photography framed, your your pieces framed, your collections of uh, you know things that you want. You know, uh, you know, put into a, uh, uh, you know, like a, a big box frame or something. You know, like I, I saw like a bunch of Michael Jordan rings. You know, come in the other day with a Michael Jordan Nike Nike Air, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, shoe, and so people bring yeah. in all sorts of stuff, and and we're trying to make a big push for that. And I think what we're what we're lucky uh, about, and this was no accident, was that there was a frame shop um, in the building years ago and my seller um basically uh capitalized on you know when when they closed their shop down he opened one up and you know kind of piggybacked on some of the clientele that might have known there was a frame shop there right so you know it, it's clever my seller was, was quite clever and and um and you know and how he you know thought to expand the business and he and he did a great job over over 30 years so well, speaking of the seller, let's let's get back to the deal itself. So thank you for your transparency and sharing all the numbers. You used your raw, give, give us kind of what did the terms of the deal look like? Because I know there were hiccups to say the least. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, before getting to that, I actually, I want to mm -hmm. just tell you about like leading up to, you know, the first LOI, like one of the cool things that I did with, you know, my friend Jan that I, that I mentioned was once I got caught up, on you know the book and you know acquiring minds and biz by cell <laughs> um you know i i started you know we started talking every day right we started like exchanging notes every day talking and so he he was kind of ahead of me right and I, but i was coming up right behind him but he was also kind of right behind another one of his friends um a, you know a guy that he'd worked with you know at a, at a bank previously and um and that guy was ahead of, of jan his name is dan and and he joined a an accelerator called Acquira, which I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. an incubator for ETA, and um, and so the three of us uh, started a pod, right? We got on a text chain together, and, and we just started sharing information left and right. And I, and I have to say, like this was one of the most instrumental, like uh, you know, uh, parts of the journey that was so helpful, you know, because we we had each other. If one of us didn't know the answer, we'd just 
text into our group and we'd have like answers and ideas and, you know, different strategies, you know, coming back right away. And I know a lot of people are doing that through, you know, search funder and other communities. Um, but you know, this little intimate group was so helpful and, um, and, and we even, um, uh, we even like, we were sharing like SBA lender contacts and we all used the, the same attorney, a guy named Jeff Bachman at Aegis Law, uh, who was incredible by the way, and I highly recommend him. He did, uh, for, for all of us, he did a flat rate through the process of, uh, of 20 K from LOI to close. And, yeah. you know, based, based on, on my research and talking to some other attorneys, um, that was a really good deal because a lot mm -hmm. of attorneys were quoting a certain percentage of, of the deal price. Um, and, you know, I was looking at, you know, 30 to 40,000 potentially, um, you know, had I gone with a, another attorney and, you know, his rates may have changed, you know, since the, the 20 K flat rate, but he was smart, uber focused on, on limiting my risk. And, and you need an attorney that really does a great job of like, you know, breaking down, all of the contract, uh, you know, lengthy contract legal clauses and understandable notes so you can make educated decisions about how you're going to manage your risk in the deal. So, um, and do you think that having this pod with Dan and Jan, because you guys knew each other and that, that it was kind of intimate was more valuable than say, just asking questions on search funder and, and Twitter? I think you've already answered that, but but expand, please. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like I, I actually didn't know Dan. We both knew Jan, so Jan was the connector. But, but yeah, it was it was personal. It was intimate. It was timely, right? You know, I could put a question into our text group, and uh, there was a commitment to answer. You know, we were all supporting each other, right? So it wasn't putting it out into the ether and, you know, hoping that someone would come back with a good response, you know, in a couple days, you know, it was same day responses. And, and we also used it as a, a venting room, you know, a crying towel, right? Because <laughs> a lot of us went through, you know, many times during our deal where the SBA lender backed out or, you know, something really critical threatened the deal and, um, and, and we could vent and, you know, try to help each other. But more importantly, help each other like come up with uh, negotiation strategies to to get out of those issues, right? And to come up with something net new. And Dan had great ideas. He had such a treasure trove from you know his incubator that you know he was giving us like templates and you know our attorney and you know. But but Jan and I also had you know many more years of business experience too that we could offer you know throughout the process. And and it was it it, it was I would highly recommend. Um, reaching out, trying to find people that are, you know, on the ETA path. And, you know, if, if, if you're, you can even time, you know, where you are in your timeline as well. Like yeah. we were so lucky. I think Dan closed his deal. Um, let's say in like at the end of April, I closed my deal June 1st. And then I think Jan closed his like mid July. So, you know, there, there were six weeks before me and six weeks after me. So we were all just like going through the same, same stuff in many ways. Well, you know, I, I, I would just want to emphasize because one of the things that my guests say over and over and over about what makes the search hard is the emotional toll and that it's a extremely lonely. You're doing this weird thing. Often your family doesn't get it. Your friends don't get it. 
Your old business colleagues don't get it. <clears throat> and then A, the loneliness, B, the roller coaster, the inevitable disappointments of broken deals, et cetera. So between loneliness and disappointment and severe ups and downs, it's uh, if you can, th th you know, to kind of make this a little clinical, like those are kind of the problems of search. Those are kind of some, some of the key problems of search. And if you can kind of alleviate or even eliminate those problems um, in a peer group, particularly, as you said, with people who are kind of going through, if, if, if you can line up the timing, amazing, you're, you're really, I guess, kind of making the search much more bearable. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And, and, and the process is, like you said, it, it is lonely and, and not everybody understands what you're trying to do. And, you know, I mentioned, I told uh, my friends I'm, I'm buying an art gallery and you know, I get a mix of responses. You know, some people would say, oh my God, that's so awesome. You know, you're, mm. you're following your passion and, you know, they were just supportive, I think from an emotional standpoint, you know, but I, I told, uh, I told my dad and he was like, you know, you've got, you know, bigger cojones than I do, you know, good luck with that. You know, it's like, so <laughs> it's like mm -hmm. not super mm -hmm. encouraging. And, um, and then you tell others <laughs> and they come back and they say, um, oh, okay. Well, I never pictured that for you, but, um, okay, good. You know, and they, and I think they think that it's like a big sleepy business and, and, uh, so it, it's a mix of responses. It is lonely and, you know, but, but I will say like, you oscillate during that process almost every day uh, from moments of panic, you know, to because of the like financial risk that you're taking on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm liquidating a large part of uh, my retirement account. And my logic was that, um, you know, this, this money that I've been saving for 25 years is going to maybe grow at 7% per year for, you know, each year, if I'm lucky you know, for the next like 20 years until I retire. And, um, and that's great. Maybe it, you know, grows 40 to 50%, um, you know, uh, you know, one, one point four or whatever it is, um, you know, in, in 20 years and, but that's not game changing. And, and, and I, I am much more aspirational than that in terms of what I, mm -hmm. what I'd like it, you know, as I, as I get older and, uh, you know, I've got young kids now and I want to be able to, uh, you know, give them experiences. And, and so I wanted to be able to put that money to use, right? So there's a huge risk, but I want to use that, that retirement money now. And when I learned that there are no IRS penalties, there's no tax that you pay on it. I mean, you basically, the way it works is, and we didn't talk about this, but yeah, the way please. it works is, um, you know, you go to a company like Guidant, who, who I went through, and you pay a you know typically five thousand dollar fee, and what they do is they they set up a C corp for you by IRS regulations. It has to be a C corp, and um, and there are you know some considerations with that because if you look up double taxation with C corp, you can you know learn that um, you know the corporation pays taxes as well as the uh, employees, uh, but there are ways to manage it, um, but. They create a C-Corp. They also create a 401k plan for your C-Corp. And the way it works is that you roll the money over from your IRA or your 401k into this 401k plan that they that they set up. And it's usually with, I think, Seattle Bank. And um, that money is then sitting in that 401k plan. And from there, 
Um, you work with a guidant to do all the documentation and they create uh, stock certificates. So they actually issue stock for your company and anything that you're rolling over then becomes part like owned technically by the 401k plan of your C Corp. And then once that's all done, you, you, you monetize that by basically transferring it and wiring it into your business checking account. So, and mm-hmm. at that point it becomes liquid, but it's highly governed what you do with that money, right? You can't go out and buy a marijuana store. You know, you can't go out and, you know, just do a whole bunch of things with Airbnb. Uh, you can't acquire, you know, properties that maybe you would eventually use for Airbnb, but there are rules and, and you have to know what they are uh, to avoid any kind of down, down the road complications with IRS. And then what Guidant does is, um, you know, there's obviously a lot of compliance that comes with that. So they do an annual, uh, you know, compliance compliance filing for you. So you're paying them, you know, throughout the year to, you know, to to get that service. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it 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 was the way to make everything possible for me. And mm-hmm. um, you know, but getting back to like, you know, the the loneliness and the risk and everything, like you, you go through this process and you have the ups and downs and and the loneliness and and the moments of risk panic. I think is is balanced by this horizon of opportunity. You know, this looking at these financial figures and you say to yourself, if I can keep this business rolling in the way that I see it performing in the last 12 months or 24 months, then, and and I've done my pro forma, my business plan to be, you know, conservative enough and maybe even account for some downside as I'm, you know, trying to take over the business and dealing with, you know, employees coming and going. Mm-hmm. You've got to be honest with yourself about, you know, the conservative numbers or liberal numbers that you build, but it it's invigorating, right? The opportunity there is like invigorating. And, and every day that you're paying your, your loan to your bank or to your seller, you are acquiring more equity in that business, right? So, you know, whatever the term you're of paying your loan yourself is, in a way. paying yourself, exactly. So with a lot of interest, unfortunately, and especially in this <laughs> environment, but, but you're paying yourself. And, you know, at the end of that 10 year term, that's your $5 million, right? That of equity, you know, when you close out those loans, right? Assuming you do it in 10 or maybe you do it in less, but that's your equity. And then everything you know, in theory becomes gravy in terms of your, your net income, right. Uh, or your SDE. So it's, uh, you, you counterbalance between these two, these highs and these lows. And, you know, one day you're literally thinking, you know, am I going to, you know, run my retirement and my future into the ground? What am I doing? You know, what the hell is this risk? And, and, and it's funny cause you go through this process of, uh, of, um, you know, M and a, right. The acquisition process. And you have to learn that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, thank you to Walker Diable. Thank you to you and, and others out there in the, in the, the HBR study, which is the second mm-hmm. Bible of how to do this. Uh, but you know, you kind of think you're, you're a total stud as you're getting through this process. And, and, and by the time you get to the closing table, you know, your family's patting you on the back and people are buying you a bottle of champagne. You sign the papers and you think you are a Goliath, you know, you are a Titan of business and industry. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, it's the peak of everything. And then you wake up the next morning and you think, what the hell did I just do? You know, what? now I've got this huge loan payment. I have this huge rent payment. I have 10 souls that work for me that I need to make sure 
I'm taking care of and and promoting and 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 I've got to grow this business and and you don't sleep for a week at least. You know, you I, I've talked to Jan and myself like I was waking up at three four in the morning and just not able to go back to sleep. Uh, you know, for at <laughs> least ten days after buying the business and and going into that operate mode. You know, you do feel. Uh, for a little while, like, you know, if I'm being honest, like a, a little bit of imposter syndrome, you know, and, and like a deer in headlights, right? Because you're, you're just trying to take on the business. You're trying to transfer accounts from the seller to yourself. You're spending more time on customer service calls with vendors and with providers and merchant services accounts than, you know, and phone companies and cable companies than you ever wanted to. But, you know, that goes away. And then you start to get into the rhythm of the business and you slowly start, you know, learning how to run that business. And, um, and, and I think for me, one of the big takeaways is making sure that you really trust your seller and that you establish a rapport with him or her during that buying process. Do not do this all through the broker. At some point, you know, when you get into the deal, you've got to insist with the seller's broker that you are meeting that seller and that you're, you know, going to that person's place of business after hours, you know, uh, to avoid, you know, discovery from the employees, uh, you know, somehow you're meeting them and, and getting to know that person, learning about the business, asking, you know, questions during the due diligence process. And, uh, and, and, and you've got to have a good relationship because, uh, I think establishing that for me, um, uh, has been, uh, just so uber critical for me over the last four months. So I, I took it over June 1st. I'm almost four months into the business and uh, my seller and I, you know, we've, we've trans, trans, transformed our relationship, you know, from him constantly telling me what needs to be done to, you know, a friendship and a trust. And he sees that I'm putting in the work and he sees that I'm learning and he sees that I know what I'm doing. And, and, you know, he's going to be a consultant of mine for at least, you know, six months. And we may do, you know, a, a phone call contract for the second six months. But, uh, you know, without that uh, trust between each other, um, you know, I, I think it's a much scarier road. Trust also helps getting the deal done because the deals, uh, there's a newsletter I subscribe to, Guesswork Investing. And he talks about coming from private equity into small business acquisition land. He was a searcher. He bought a business. And how in both private equity and down here in small business acquisition land, it's not, he, he refers to the cliche, um, time kills all deals. And he's like, it's worse than that. Deals want to die. They are looking for a reason to die. They are, they are trains careening down a track that at any moment are just going to jump the track. And your job is to take this unwieldy beast and just do everything you can to keep it on, to keep it on the track. And so, so as we all know, you know, deals die three times before they get across the finish line and so on. And the more trust you have with your seller, the better, the more likely are you, the more likely you are to survive, uh, survive that process. What did, that look like between you and your seller? Because I know that there were some fits and starts. Yeah. So, you know, for, I'll get into the building trust first and then get into the deal dying a few times. So on the topic of trust, the way that it worked for me and my seller initially uh, was that when I put in my LOI, 
the same on the same day his broker uh told me and i thought this was a ruse by the way i thought this was like a, a selling negotiation tactic he told me that another offer had just come in the day before and this is after this business had been on the market for five to six months so mm. i thought oh this is like kind of convenient timing this is probably not real but i had to take it at face value right so so that impacted you know the monetary value of my offer and everything but ultimately it came down to um, us um, doing a meet the owner event. So the other buyer uh, candidate uh, met the owner and I met the owner and we, we came you know to the gallery separately after hours to, to meet with him and and just you know talk about who we were and you know, what we wanted to do with the business, learn a little bit more about the business. And you know another thing like that I, I felt like I went out on a limb a little bit, but I, I gave him, like my, you know, 60 second, like heartfelt speech about why I was doing this and, you know, what my goals were, what I wanted to accomplish, you know, that it was, you know, ultimately for the benefit of uh, my wife and my two children and for you know them to spend more time with their daddy, you know, as, uh, as they get older. So, you know, I could take over the business really work hard for several years and and slowly begin to take myself out of the business that when I, you know, tweak it and get it where I want to. And, um, and, and the buyer or the seller since shared with me that, um, you know, the other buyer candidate was significantly more well capitalized than I was. There would be a lot more, you know, money down. Uh, but you know, it was the vibe that he got. It was the, uh, familiarity with the, the family story, um, you know, and, and mine was authentic, right? I'm not suggesting to be inauthentic, but, but, but he connected with that and, you know, he turned down another buyer that could have been an easier transaction, you know, cause we mm -hmm. had our bumps along the way and a lot of it was related to my financing. So, um, that's, I mean, that's my advice for, you know, uh, searchers out there is to, you know, really find a way to connect with your seller and insist with, you know, the seller's broker that, that you have the opportunity to, to meet with the seller and not just do all the negotiation through attorneys and through the broker. Like he and I had lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations at the end of the deal where, you know, things were looking sour at certain points. And he and I had lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations where he and I came up with clever ideas to solve a problem. Right. And, mm -hmm. and credit to the seller, he came up with a lot of those and, and, and so did I. And, you know, but, and by the time we established this relationship that was, uh, you know, uh, open, uh, he was more than willing to, you know, acquiesce to some of my asks, you know, that he uh, probably wouldn't have earlier in the process because he, he's a tough negotiator and uh, it was not an easy negotiation or process. But I think towards the end, you know, we both wanted the deal for each other. Mm -hmm. And do you want to, can you share the terms of the deal? Yeah. So, yeah. So originally the LOI was a purchase price of 4.9 million. That included one million of inventory. It was uh, going to be, you know, about four point four million of of cash at closing. You know, between you know me and an SBA lender, uh, I offered you know ten thousand dollars of earnest money in good faith, just to show that I was uh, you know willing to stick into the deal. I, I asked for a um, a ten percent uh, seller note of about four hundred ninety k, and offered I think. Uh, a generous 7.5% interest rate on that seller note just to sweeten the deal. 
7.5 was generous at the time. You know, in interest rates have gone up since. Um, but at the time, I learned that, you know, other seller notes were, you know, offering, you know, 1 to 1.5 points less than what I offered. That mm -hmm. kind of came back to bite me because that rate kept going up. So I wish I had anchored at a, at a lower rate. But, um, mm. you know, and I asked for, obviously, exclusivity to ensure that the seller wasn't any entertaining any other deals and, uh, you know, taking it off biz by sell, which I think is pretty standard. And he came back and asked for a $150,000 earnest money deposit, <laughs> which everyone, you know, all attorneys and, you know, uh, and, and I think his broker maybe too, everyone was uh, a little surprised by that, but he really wanted to get, you know, me stuck into the deal. Um, and it was interesting because he wanted, you know, to me really to show that sign of good faith, but, but that created a lot of downstream issues because our negotiation subsequent to that really was more around, am I going to lose this earnest money, uh, you know, if, if the deal falls apart? So it was all about where, what date we were setting uh, where the earnest money goes hard and it's no longer accessible to me despite what happens with the deal. And we probably spend our wheels uh, for a long, long time with attorneys and attorney's fees on, on his side. I had a flat rate just trying to navigate this, right? Um, so we eventually settled on like a $100,000 earnest money deposit and we figured out how to make it work. And, you know, ultimately he, you know, he bent on some of the, on the terms related to it. But, um, and then I had an SBA lender, uh, you know, after interviewing, you know, 12, I found one that was, um, that was solid and they were going to give me a prime plus 1.5% um, variable, you know, interest rate, which um, was pretty good. Uh, considering that I think the standard offer from SBA lenders is about prime plus 2.5. That's kind of like, you know, top shelf, bottom shelf, whatever you want to call it. That's the standard offer that they're, that they're making. And if you can cut that down to 1.5, then you're doing okay. There were some other flat rates that were available out there, you know, in the eights, but uh, a little harder to get. And my SBA lender at some point during the deal said, you know what? you've got too much um, blue sky or air ball in your deal, you know, where I just didn't have enough uh, collateral to satisfy the, the loan. Um, and that, you know, and that's even taking into account, you know, a life insurance policy that they were requiring me to take out. So they came back and said, we need to increase the seller note from, you know, 490 K to about 1 million, you know, so he's in for 20%. And, um, you know, and this, this didn't sit well with the seller uh, because we thought that the deal was starting to shape up, right? So the seller yeah. started to get fairly frustrated with the SBA lender at this point. But, um, but you know, he asked for a few things and eventually, you know, bent to the 20%. So we agreed on a, on a $1 million seller note. And then he came back and, you know, asked for a higher percentage interest on that increased value that he'd be loaning, you know, which the logic follows. So we agreed on an 8% interest instead of 7.5. And, um, you know, and then towards the end, we got to a point where um, we, we needed to change the deal up a little bit. And, and, and the SBA lender started to show him the, uh, you know, maybe three or four days before closing showed him the, uh, the, the fine print on how the seller note would be subordinated to the SBA loan. 
and you know it basically read you know this is all standard language from the SBA so you know anybody that's going into this you need to be aware that this could be a a gotcha with the seller but basically it says that you know his seller note uh if, if I stopped paying it but I was paying the SBA loan he would have no recourse right and and I think my seller's like fear was that um, you know, after seven years, he would have no legal recourse. And I, if I were still paying my SBA loan and that, I, you know, I could just stiff him ultimately. And, you know, that's really not how things, you know, work, but, um, but that was his fear. And so he killed the deal at the 11th hour. He, he killed the deal. I was actually out to dinner with two of my friends celebrating that I was about to sign uh, closing, you know, in a day or two. And I got a text from him and he said, uh, you know, we've got an emergency. This deal is dead. <laughs> wow. so, you know, you, so I left the dinner. I'm outside calling him, asking him and, and, you know, he, and he was upset, uh, but he wasn't upset at me. At least he reached out to you. Yeah. Uh, Cause a it, lot of, a lot of people, a lot of sellers, when they want to kill the deal, they, they ghost you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and his attorney hadn't done an SBA deal as well. He had a very like qualified, uh, experienced attorney who was very good, but I think he was more experienced doing like private equity size deals and, mm. you know, never dealing with SBA. It was his first SBA one. And he even advised his client, don't, don't do this deal. I can't recommend if you stop doing this deal, you know, I, uh, I can't represent you. And so, um, you know, so they were kind of, you know, two peas in a pod at that point. And, and so he said, look, I, I need the, I'm going out of town right now. I need the weekend to think about it. And, you know, I, I still want to do the deal, but I just don't know how we're going to get it done. So that left me with two days of absolute abject, you know, disappointment and brokenheartedness. And, um, you know, but he came back on Crying Monday. on the shoulder of your yeah, pod. Yeah, te texting. Using that pod. Texting my yeah. pod, you know, um, you know, you know, and I got those same texts from those guys when they went through it too. But he came back the next week, you know, a little refreshed, had some time to think on it. And, and he basically came back and he offered me like uh, two options. Um, you know, one uh, was a 100% seller carry, 100% uh, seller note, um, not 100% of the 5.3, but 100% of whatever loan that I needed to get there. And, um, uh, and he said, or, you know, and this could be an interesting option, um, I am willing to, you know, be your partner for, for two years and you can, you can buy in equity and I'll be your partner and we can work together. And then, you know, over the course of two years, we can, you know, part ways and, you know, we'll have a, a loan and maybe you'll have an SBA loan or, you know, maybe it'll be a seller note at that point, but you can continue to, to buy up your equity. And, um, you know, I thought, honestly, I was like really impressed that, uh, that he came up with those ideas and that he offered that. And I was, I was honored that he was willing to work with me as a business partner in that kind of a relationship. And I told him as much. And, um, but I knew immediately when he offered the business partnership that that was not what I wanted to do because my, you know, you, you've got to come into this knowing what your goals are, right. And what, yeah. what your desired outcome is. And, and my goals were to be my own boss. And to, you know, have my own business and to be, uh, you know, responsible for everything in the business to learn it inside out and, and not to buy a new job. Right. I know that's something a lot of people talk about is, you know, trying to avoid buying a new job. 
And uh, so, you know, I politely declined the partnership offer, but I, um, you know, I, and, and I was a little intimidated by doing, you know, the seller carry for, you know, uh, uh, the balance of everything for the loan. But, um, because I would be so intrinsically tied to him because he is, you know, and now he's my landlord, he's my bank and he's my consultant, right? So we, we are very, you know, our, our success is now mutually intertwined, which is good, but it's a very tightly wound relationship, right? So, uh, so I took him up on it and we got the deal uh, dusted off. We kind of had to go back to the attorneys and, and say, all right, we've got a a, you know, fairly decent restructure of the deal here, you know, all other things, uh, notwithstanding, we just need to change, you know, some of these, you know, loan sections in the deal. And I had to go out and get different types of insurances and pledge him some security interest in the business. If I were to ever, you know, fail on, you know, paying the loan. And so, you know, he, he definitely, um, wrapped it pretty tightly around me in terms of, uh, you know, my, my commitment to uh, make, make him whole in the event that something didn't work out. But, um, we, we figured it out. Right. And at the end of the day, the final deal structure was a, a total loan of 5.31 million. Um, and, and at this point, the inventory went from 1 million to 1.4 million because uh, during my process that they told me that there's actually more inventory. There was actually another 600K of inventory, but I said that, uh, you know, I couldn't take all that on. So we whittled it down to 400K and I had to decide, you know, on some pieces and some artists that I, I didn't want to bring in. But I had a seller note of uh, 3.91 million at 9% interest starting on June 1st. And then, um, you know, for that extra 400K, he gave me, a little bit of extra time to kind of swallow that pill. So we set up a, a second seller note of 400K at 9% interest that would start on October 1st. So I'm a few days away from doing that, that second note. Um, and then I did a self-funded equity injection of, of $1 million. And that included, you know, my $100,000 earnest payment. Um, and I had to get, you know, an insurance policy and pledge, you know, security in the business if, uh, if, if some of that didn't work out. So you had around a million dollars in your 401k. I did. I had, I had uh, a, a little bit more than that, but um, yeah, that was a large bulk of it. And, and so this really, I think you said it earlier, but this is going really all in. All in, 100% in. And what does your dad uh, say now that now that you're on the other side of the transaction? <laughs> I think he's he's still you know waiting for the shoe to drop. I guess you know one way or another. But but uh, you know ultimately I I am happy beyond belief. It is everything that I had hoped it was going to be. I um, and what is the, and what is that, Sean? What what is makes it makes you so happy? You know I. Um, I, I went from, you know, jobs where you have significant daily work stress and you have, you know, when you work in a big corporation, you have a highly matrixed organization typically, and you may have a manager who is called your boss, but you really are accountable to dozens and dozens of people, right? And, and you don't always control uh, the amount of work uh, that is being asked of you, right? You know, you, you, we're all, you know, very reactive and, and you don't control the, the funnel of business, especially in sales. So that was a lot of daily stress that uh, I was doing for other people. 
uh, and it was really a grind. And, and for me, as I've gotten older and maybe more set in my ways or maybe just more confident or maybe just more stubborn, you know, I just, I was started to reject that completely. And, um, so this, this new premise of really me being the boss, me driving the tempo, everything that I'm doing is for my family. It's for our future success. Um, you know, there's a lot more motivation there. There's a lot more willingness to, you know, roll your sleeves up and, and get into it. Uh, and, and, you know, like, like, like we talked about earlier, you know, every payment that you're making is, you know, you're really paying yourself in equity. So, uh, it was a no brainer for me. And, um, and while I will say that there is a, a larger kind of overhanging umbrella of burden, you know, financial uh, risk out there, it, it's manageable because I did the due diligence on the business and the business is performing as, as I expected, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not like, uh, breaking any records right now, but it's, it's doing what I need it to do. And, and we are having fun with it. The team and I have really bonded and created a, a strong relationship. I've got really smart people in the gallery and I, I learn from them every day, you know, which coming from a uh, corporate business world, coming to a gallery, I think I thought that, oh, I'm going to be able to teach them everything. And, you know, but they are teaching me everything. And, uh, and, and I'm loving the process of learning. I'm also loving the business that I bought because it's a passion business as well as a successful one. So, well, let me ask you about that, Sean, because I recall you saying that you'd seen when in your kind of biz by sell browsing more practical businesses, maybe more sound businesses, more of the type of businesses that a searcher would traditionally go after. And the conventional wisdom led you there, but then your kind of your heart for for lack of a better way to put Definitely. it, um, kind of raised its hand and was like, you know, if I'm going to leave corporate, safe corporate, where I'm I'm clearly having a lot of success and there's a, there's a there's a path laid out for me and I can continue having success, you know, I want to do it for something that lights me up, not just for more drudgery, even if I get to be my own boss in that drudgery. Elaborate on that. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm surrounding myself in beautiful art every day in the workplace and and the art is my business. And you know, part of the fun now is that I get to curate the art. I get to develop the relationships with the artists and um that that is like so fulfilling for me and 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 I've also taken it upon myself to really study the art industry and along with that comes some really great things, right? So I, I, I've booked a ticket to go to the, you know, Miami Art Week, right? Where Art Basel Fair is going to be among a dozen other fairs. It's a five-day thing. And, you know, I can't wait to go just like parachute in there and learn about this other aspect of the art industry, right? Because like I told you there are some echelons to the business. And, and some of that is, you know, probably, you know, out of my reach in terms of, you know, the expense of the pieces that, you know, they're going to be showing. And some of them are installations, but, but I'm rounding out my knowledge. And, and I booked another trip to go to the um, uh, European fine art fair in Maastricht, Netherlands in March next year, um, where I really want to get into, you know, the, uh, the European art community and understand what they're doing. Because right now, most of our artists are North America based. And if I'm able to expand internationally and, you know, curate some interest in that, I think that'll be fun. 
so it's a journey for me and and it's a it's a labor of love in terms of learning about something that I've always been interested in and uh, never been able to really devote the the time that I wanted to to it. So Sean, it's so fortunate that you not only found a business that is a labor of love, but it's also a really strong business because as we've already talked about, often those often those things can cannot fall in the same bucket. But here is a passion business that is also a really good business. It seems like a business that would require passion. Like it, it seems like your customers, your employees are going to require your interest in art in a way that maybe somebody buying an HVAC business, the 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 crews don't necessarily expect you to be an HV, HVAC technician or an HVAC expert. Now, kind of earning credibility with those crews is part of the process. It is something you need to do, but they're they're not going to expect you to develop actual functional knowledge so that you can go out alongside them in the cruise. So some learning is definitely expected to earn credibility with your team in kind of a blue collar business, but not all the way in. And in this, you probably got to go all the way in. They probably they probably wouldn't appreciate in, in an art gallery business, an arm's length kind of owner. Am I right about that? And then also curious, could you have bought, seen yourself buying a blue collar, a more kind of practical business. What would that have looked like for Sean? Was that ever in the cards? Yeah. So I look. I, I to answer your first question. I think um, you know, could anybody step in and buy an art gallery business uh, with or without the passion? Sure. But are you going to be credible as the as the owner and the the person that's driving the business uh, if you don't have the passion for it? Probably not, um, but I, I think that there's a parallel with that to any any business to some degree. Like you need to establish the credibility with your crews or your teams or your sellers. And you know, the difference for me is uh, having the passion for it just makes it like so palatable, and not just palatable, but makes it just so like invigorating every day. Yeah, that uh, it's such a difference maker, right? So and that that actually led to my ultimate decision, because I was heavily weighing a few other companies. Some of these companies were like a construction generator rental company. One mm. was a, um, a multifamily dwelling renovation company. Mm -hmm. uh, another was a home construction company. And these were all kind of like in my, you know, uh, scope criteria that I was, uh, I had narrowed down on biz by sell. And I, I really thought about it and I, I looked at a lot of these and at the end of the day, it came, you know, it, it, and I know so many people go out there and they buy a business that they're not passionate about. And, and maybe it's hard to be passionate about an HVAC business or hard to be passionate about a generator rental company, but are you passionate about building your family's future? Then absolutely. Mm -hmm. If it's a sound business, then you go in there, you figure out how to run it. And you, you know, if you can step away and let the teams run it that are, that you've highly trained over a few years, then, then I think that's a great recipe. I just happen sure. to get lucky with, uh, you know, seeing this like beacon of light out there at biz by sell the first time I looked and it was just something, it just kept pulling me, pulling me, pulling me. And ultimately I considered, I think, you know, the differences of, uh, you know, managing some of the labor teams, um, you know, in the services business and all the HR that might be involved in that. And, you know, some of the, some of the transient nature of some of the employees, um, I, 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 I weighed that and I thought, you know, I actually don't want to, uh, deal with that as much. I'd rather be dealing with people that love art that are interested in it and that can, can teach me about it. And then I can just go, 
skyrocket into this place that, that I love. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Sean, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they, how should they reach out? Yeah, you can email me at uh, sean at fascinationst.com or uh, you can uh, go to our website at uh, fascinationstart.com and uh, we've got our phone number up there and you can you can call into the gallery anytime. Congratulations, Sean, on not only buying a business, which everybody who sits in your seat there uh, deserves to hear, but also in finding this this passion business. It's It's such an interesting business. We could have spent another hour uh, with me asking you about the ins and outs of, of the gallery business. So maybe another time, um, but really interesting and really cool that it's, um, it just lights you up so much. So thanks for coming on, sir. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Will. I loved coming on here and loved getting to, to know you in the process too. Thanks, John.